This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This is our ninth lecture in the series of classes on contemporary theological issues. That's what we're going to talk about uh, now, and uh, we're on our ninth one. Uh, we've been meeting, I think, around 11, 12. This is our 12th week, but uh, we've only made it through nine, uh, and this will be the ninth one. Well, we're going to make it through nine, I hope. Uh, that'll be this evening. It's going to be a tremendous challenge for me to what I like to say, stay in my lane. What do I mean by that? Because if I'm not careful, I'm going to do exactly what I accuse social media of doing tonight, spreading fake news, all right? In other words, I hope as we sit here and listen, you don't say, I don't understand what he's talking about. That doesn't make sense to me. I'll explain why. This evening, I'm not going to try to convince you one way or the other regarding the efficacy of social media. In other words, I'm not going to try to convince you that we should have social media or we shouldn't have social media. I think that ship has sailed. Uh, it's here to stay. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which websites are trustworthy, um, which ones are spreading fake news. I'm not going to tell you which platforms are dangerous and which are owned by the Chinese, which apps will make your life easier and which ones will turn your brain to mush. I'm not going to give you a list tonight of here's what social media is good, what parts of social media is good, and here's what you should be aware of. You see, the moment we start dictating what is right and what is evil, one, we're going to leave something out. I cannot exhaust the internet. I can't exhaust everything that you would find there to, to make a, a, a statement on whether that's good or bad. But number two, and probably more importantly... I'll be doing exactly what I find repulsive, what I don't like, asking you to believe me because I've researched this. And in essence, that's really what you do when you go to social media. People are asking for you to believe them because they have the research. What I would be doing if I start giving you a laundry list of, of apps and websites and platforms is while I would leave some out, what I would be really doing is I would asking for you to just trust me. But in fact, what I would like for you to do this evening is critique this. I'd like you to critique me. I want you to analyze, assess, evaluate, and appraise what I say this evening against Scripture. Because ultimately, what I want to do is appeal to your own sense of spiritual discernment. And if I can do that, if I can help you exercise your ability to discern a theology of social media, I'm confident you'll be able to discern the practical utility and maybe even the futility of social media. So why is this so important? Because when Paul gave Timothy his final words of instruction, he reminded Timothy that all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. That's a heavy verse. If you live godly in Christ, you'll suffer persecution. He then said, but evil men and seducers, or what we would call imposters, shall wax worse and worse. And here is what they will be doing. They are going to be deceiving and being deceived. So Paul tells Timothy to continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. 
Paul is telling Timothy to stay anchored in the word of God. Regardless of what culture does around you, Timothy, you stay anchored. Stick with the truth. Stay with the gospel. The only way for you to resist being deceived, Timothy, is by staying faithful to divine revelation, the Bible. Remember in our first lecture how we established that only divine revelation is something you can truly know. Now we're going to see how divine revelation will keep us from believing lies. And this is what the Bible says. It cautions us to be careful in the last days because in the last days, perilous times will come. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Since the beginning of time, man has desired to know. Remember the Garden of Eden? The fall came about because why? Man wanted to know what? The know have the knowledge of good and evil. But this pursuit of information, this desire to know, has not always and is not always wrong. It's not wrong to want to know. And information is good. In fact, the desire to know has compelled humanity through millennia. The desire to know is why we have technology. The desire to know is why we had an industrial revolution. We have this desire to know. Proverbs 18.15 says, The heart of the prudent, or the wise, getteth knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The most fundamental and primary responsibility of human existence is to then know God. The problem is when we knew God, we glorified him not as God but became vain in our imaginations and our foolish hearts were darkened. So while we still have a thirst for knowledge, Fallen man's desire is desiring what other fallen men have to teach. So fallen men design other fallen men to teach us. Does this mean that all sources of information is suspect or untrustworthy trustworthy because it comes from man? Did you know the Bible has given us several examples of trustworthy information being passed from very wicked sources? In Joshua chapter 2, verse 10 through 11, Rahab is hiding the two spies of Israel. And she tells them that the city of Jericho has heard the news. This is what she tells them. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and how God had destroyed the kings. So Rahab is in Jericho and she hears these stories of things that have happened down in Egypt and things that have happened in the wilderness. In fact, she says the news of the Israelites coming their way has brought fear in Jericho. How did Rahab know these things? Certainly it wasn't from divine revelation. The, she heard about these things well before these two spies ever showed up. I think news spread throughout that land. The Israelites are coming. 
and fear passed. So where did she get that information? She had, there was some sort of news source. There was, whether it was word of mouth, I don't know if Jericho had the Jericho Times. I have no idea. But there was news that was getting passed. What about Ahasuerus in the book of Esther? He sends a proclamation throughout his realm to hold a beauty contest. And when Mordecai hears it, he believes this event enough to happen so that he convinces his cousin Esther to enter into the contest. Hey, Esther, you want to be queen? Have I got a deal for you? What if Mordecai had handled the news like we often do? Ah, that's fake news. I don't trust it. I can't trust these messengers who are coming to me from the king. You're making this up. The king's going to have a beauty contest. Why? Because he put away his other wife? Yeah, sign Esther up for that. What about Caesar Augustus' decree for, for a census in Luke chapter 2, verse 1? Perhaps Joseph should have said, oh, no, I don't trust the government. I don't trust the decree. I'm not going to the census. You see, whether it's Rahab or Ahasuerus or Augustus, these were not what we would call people of great reputations spiritually. Yet they passed news. And the Bible records that news, that this is what they did. And people believed it and trusted it. These are just a few examples of word being passed in the Bible and that the word passed was trustworthy and accurate. So while I'm not beginning this lecture by advocating we should trust all the news we hear, I'm saying that we do have examples of times when at very least news was shared and though the sources were suspect, the news was still accurate. So at very least we can acknowledge tonight it can be done. Whether or not it's being done today, we'll look and see. But it can be done. You don't have to have divine revelation to know about what's going on in the world around you. But precisely because man is fallen, we do have to be careful with the information and the sources of information that we seek. This is because there is imminent danger of deception. I already mentioned how Adam and Eve wanted to know knowledge of good and evil, but do you remember why they wanted their information? For at least, for Eve at least, it was because she had been deceived. This is the way it has been since the beginning. And so the first thing we have is a sign of the past. The sign of the past is that Satan has always tried to deceive man. This is what Jesus accuses the devil of in John chapter 8 when he said he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. A sign of the past is that Satan has always wanted to deceive man. It wasn't just in the past, though. It's a sign of our present times. A sign of our present times is John warns Christians to not believe every spirit. But in 1 John, he says, try the spirits. Precisely because there are so many false prophets in the world. 
Now, I want to be careful. This is not just an application to theological error, although it is that. But this is a warning against all who would oppose truth. If all truth is God's truth, then any opposition to truth is an opposition to God and thus opposition to His Son. Those who speak lies are literally antichrist. The danger of deception is something we deal with in our present time. Well, if you didn't get it, if it's a sign of the past, a sign of the present, a sign of the future, guess what? It's not going away. It's not going to get better. People are not getting more and more honest over time. Jesus clarified this in Matthew 24. As the end approaches, he says, there will be many who will have a desire to deceive. Deception is a constant threat to humanity. It was in the past, it is currently in the present, and it will be a threat in the future. So for our purposes in this course, and because of this course is called Contemporary Theological Issues, we're going to concentrate not on the past and not on the future, we're going to concentrate on the present, on the current state of affairs as man thirsts for information while having to thwart the imminent danger of deception. And I can think of no greater means where deception is occurring than social media and the Internet. This is why I've chosen to pull from the verse, 2 Timothy 3, and the title of this lecture, Evil Men and Seducers, How Christians Should Engage Social Media. So let's begin by taking a look at the cultural wonder of social media. And this would be a great place to define what I mean by this term, social media. I like the Tufts University definition of social media, and that will be the one we'll use. Now, according to Tufts, so social media refers to the means of interaction among people in which they create, share, and or exchange information and ideas in virtual communities and networks. So the key to understanding this definition is this. It is interactive participation. Unlike broadcast media, you know, like movies, television, radio, newspaper, where a message is broadcasted to a group with no opportunity to respond. I know some of you probably do scream and yell at your television. I know you might sit there and talk back to the radio or you're reading the paper and you tell it how wrong it is, but it's not listening. Individuals now can seek information from several sources and we can now dialogue with others via message forums about that information that's posted. It becomes interactive participation. It's an ongoing conversation. So a fundamental characteristic of social media, though, is that it is digital. It's digital. This is what facilitates the interaction. The second characteristic is that there is some form of participation. Social media are never completely passive. See, even if you were to say, well, I get on Facebook and I just kind of look at it. I'm not, really, I'm not really saying anything. I don't actually post anything. I just read everybody else. You say, well, it's really passive. Well, the fact is by you actually getting onto Facebook and creating an account, you had to create an identity. And so you are now participating in that social media. So, yeah. Lurking. Yep. So, uh, 
digital voyeurism. Uh, you could call it whatever you want. So uh, people get on there and they just start looking and lurking and, and say, but you're still participating in the social media. Because media, and it's not just Facebook. I think we can extrapolate this findings uh, or these kind of things to other things. So, uh, but, but participation is a key component uh, of it. It's digital and there is participation. But unlike traditional or broadcast media where there are no personal profiles and thus no ability to interact, it's, it's different. This is digital. And the third characteristic is, is kind of stems from participation, but it's the idea of interaction. And remember, interaction and participation is the key. This is what drives social media and its content. While one may sign up for an account on a platform and will make the first move simply by participating, the success of that social media platform really is determined by the participants' willingness to interact with each other on there. You, we could just take this into a very simple scale and say, when you send an email to someone, you realize the success of your email based on what? Whether you get a response back. Some of you will sit there and refresh and refresh and refresh, hoping you get a response back. But it's the interaction with each other. It is this interaction that has had an effect on both the quantity and the quality of information that's available to us. So a very recognizable example of this is Facebook. In his book, The Church of Facebook, Jesse Rice points out the quality of information, particularly on Facebook, is affected precisely because of interaction. Now, we, like I said, we're going to look at just Facebook, but I think we can extrapolate this to other social media platforms as well. So we'll just use play, uh, uh, Facebook as just an example. Now, because social media uses interaction, radical new patterns of association emerge. So you get on a Facebook group or you get into this and all of a sudden this, this new association comes out of that. Literally, old adage, those of a feather flock together is at play here. You have some sort of connection with someone, and that's why you come, they come into your, you're building this community. And it might be just the fact that you, uh, you tag someone. You could all maybe like the same thing, but it puts you into this group. So maybe using a more contemporary colloquialism, Facebook creates echo chambers where information might come from many different sources and perspectives, but those on interacting are only hearing the same perspectives and opinions over and over again because you all have the same mindset. Rice says this is because there are three principles at work in social networking technologies. First, there is the synchronizing of large populations in very little time. All of a sudden, a big group comes together in this short little time, thereby creating spontaneous order. Secondly, this spontaneous order can generate outcomes that are entirely new and unpredictable. And three, these unpredictable outcomes require the affected population to adapt their behavior to more adequately live within the new, new spontaneous or generated order. So what is he saying? Rice is saying is the digital version of groupthink. Social media platforms develop algorithms to pull people together who, are under, who under normal circumstances, normal circumstances would never interact. 
This newly created group communicates with each other and passes information that effectively creates its own subculture. This subculture then develops its own rules of behavior, perhaps unwritten, where the peer pressure and inclusion drive the enforcement. So you can see how pragmatism and not necessarily truth begins to drive information. If you talk like me, if you write like me, you'll be in the group and you're going to live by these certain rules, whether you acknowledge it or not. And some algorithm has put us all together. So that is what social media does. Now, there are different classifications of social media. You have email, text, blogs, message boards, connection sites, social networking sites, games and entertainment, and apps. There are all types of social media. And believe it or not, we use these sites to gather information about our world, and we use them to share information. And though each have different functions... They all provide, each of them have a different way of doing, they all have the basic functions. First, they provide information that is identifiable. It's a human tendency to want to be known. Some have greater ambitions than others, but social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and other connection sites allow you to create a profile giving you the autonomy to create this profile so that you can create your own identity. You're telling the world, this is who I am. Now, you can be honest in that, or you can be as dishonest as you want. But it creates an identity. Someone once said, and we're going to talk about this word in a little bit uh, in a different capacity, but someone said it's no longer dualism where you've got the spirit and the body. You've got your spirit, you've got your body, and, that you, and then you have your online persona, the one you want to be. It allows you to create a profile that's giving you the opportunity to exercise real or perceived self-awareness. What an individual puts in his or her profile is what they want the world to know about them. They create the narrative whether it's true or not. So the first thing it does, a function of social media, is it's identifiable. Second, social media does allow people to build, does allow people to build relationships, for better or worse. Social media, even if it is dysfunctional, develops digital relationships between humans. Spouses have met each other on dating sites simply because an algorithm connected them together. Classmates have connected on alumni connection sites. And there have even been those who connected to their own ancestry using social media. So while certainly outlets such as Facebook or Twitter are demonized as narcissistic and shallow, research does show that they allow people who may not otherwise be able to connect an outlet to interact. And so it's relational. I'm not defending it as good or bad. Third, social media allows people to work in ways traditional media could not facilitate. For some, social media is their work as they write blogs or create vlogs or develop their YouTube channels or their online persona. Most of us found social media to be a sanity check during COVID when we were under lockdown 
And with Zoom, Google Meet, Microsoft Teams, that allowed us to continue interacting with work colleagues or even family. Most of us do it daily. We use work in our, or we use this uh, media as a as a occupational. We use it daily as we send and receive emails. And many jobs have some sort of social media presence to disseminate and receive information. Facebook pages, websites. The final function of social media is that it allows for people to seek information or share ideas. And this information can range from political campaigns to local issues to disaster relief to where a good place to buy plus size clothing. Because it is interactive, people can also gather information by hearing others' opinions, and then they offer their own. So that's the functions of social media. It's identifiable, it's relational, it's occupational, it's informational. Though all of these can be good, it probably goes without saying they can also be really bad. This is why it's imperative for Christians to have discernment. Now, before we dive into this concept of discernment, allow me to share some illustrations with how we, that's Christians, often lack discernment. These illustrations are more historical, but I think they demonstrate how important discernment is in general, rather than me trying to make an argument about discernment regarding social media specifically. And so perhaps a, a little adventure down memory lane will help. For those of us who grew up in conservative churches during the 70s, 80s, and 90s of the previous century, do you remember those bonfires that seemed to happen after summer church camp? Does anybody remember those? You know the fires, what fueled them? Rock music records. And then cassettes, and eventually CDs. Or maybe it was a piece of paper where you wrote down a sin, a bad habit, a hang-up. You placed it in the fire to represent ridding that sin or bad habit or hang-up from your life. Some, maybe in some youth groups, it was a stick that you threw into the fire to represent those things. Well, I don't think those had a certain cultural appeal, and I, or I do think they had a certain cultural appeal, and I do think they served a limited purpose at those times. I remember being at those bonfires, and I remember putting a lot of sticks in a fire, uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, that symbolic uh, confession of sin. See, you, you know what I'm talking about. Well... I do think they had a limited purpose, and while I do think those had a cultural appeal, it's, it, it, I, you can really tell how effective they were because, well, we're, still, we're not doing those bonfires anymore. At least I haven't seen one in a long time. Of course, I haven't been to summer camp in a long time either, but uh, it's extremely difficult for one to come to terms with throwing, though, if we're going to relate it to today, your entire computer or a tablet or a smartphone into a fire? And can we actually throw the entire internet into a fire? Or how do you burn an app? How do you incinerate a website to demonstrate your desire to get that out of your life? Can you see how discernment is more important now than ever? You see, music albums were one thing. They were tangible and accessible. But with the advent of the digital age, we can't have a good old book burning like we used to. 
Before we make youth group bonfires great again, we have to ask ourselves, did they actually really work? What if they never actually dealt with the root of the problem? What if they never dealt with discernment? Instead, just like the parable, I feel we have often cleaned house, but we didn't replace it with truth. And so the unclean spirit returns to a clean house and brings with it seven other spirits more wicked than himself. They come in to live, and the dwelling of eight spirits make the place worse than it was with just one evil spirit. And when it comes to social media, this is, in my opinion, an example of something eight times worse. And part of the reason I bring up the generations raised in the 70s, 80s, and 90s of the last century is because as I look at this class this evening, it's you. It's me. We are the baby boomers, the generation Xers, the, even some on the beginning of the millennia, so the millennials. And I know you don't want to hear it, but even millennials who are, so, are some of the biggest offenders of abusing and misusing social media. Think about it. A lot of our children are growing up knowing only life that contains social media. And they've learned from a very young age that it can't be trusted. But it's the old folks who've come onto it later in life. And if it's on the internet, it must be true. As long as you can see it online, there's got to be truth. So can we trust what we see on social media or online in general? Now, we must be careful how we respond to that question. Can we trust it? And my inclination is probably, as yours is, to emphatically say, no, we can't trust anything there. After all, doesn't the Bible say all men are liars? So let's try a thought experiment. And I ask that you indulge me. How many of you, I'm going to ask this question. How many of you trust, you ready for it? How many of you trust the media? Not a hand. I don't have one person here who says, oh, I trust the media. All right. Keeping your mistrust of the media in mind, let's see how your opinion might factor into this situation. And I think it will demonstrate how contradictory humans, especially Christians, can be. All right. Imagine with me the world is three years, maybe even close to four now, into the Great Tribulation. Of course, the world does not necessarily know it's in the Great Tribulation. All it knows is that over the past three and a half years, it has experienced horrible plagues, war, famine, and natural disasters. And also for the past three years, there have been two guys who have been preaching and performing miracles. The entire world knows who they are, and though some have tried to assassinate these two preachers, none have been successful. That is, until finally, a hero politician comes to the front. He comes on the scene, and after going head-to-head -head with these two preachers, he kills them. They're killed in Jerusalem, and it is there that their bodies are left in the street for three days. They're not even afforded a decent burial. Instead, the crowds mock and desecrate the bodies. They throw parties and send gifts to each other to celebrate the death of these two preachers. Then, after lying in the street for three days, something incredible happens. While everyone is celebrating, these two bodies stand up, brush themselves off, 
And this voice booms from heaven, come up thither. And these two preachers with everyone watching ascend into heaven. Do you believe it? You may be familiar with this story. It's in Revelation chapter 11. You may also be asking, what does this have to do with social media? Well, what intrigues me is verse 9 of chapter 11. It says this, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Look who's going to see these bodies laying in the street. There's actually four that are mentioned in that verse. The people, kindreds, tongues, and nations. Now, this could be John's way of writing that, hey, a variety of people are going to see these bodies. There's going to be a lot of people who will see these two witnesses lying in the street. But John does use the Greek word laos for people. Laos is a people group a tribe, or a nation. Really, it's all who speak the same language from the same stock. In the New Testament, this is the word that is consistently used for the Jews. Then you have those who are related to the Jews. That would be the kindred. Now, who those kindred are, I'm not quite sure. You know, we could look through it through New Testament eyes and say, well, that must be the Samaritans. But since this is prophetic, it makes more sense that we should consider it through the culture today. So it could be cultural Jews who make up the greater political nation of Israel as we see it today. A secular nation with a Jewish culture, albeit not the Jewish religion. And then there are those of different languages. The word here in our Bible is tongues. And then it says, and nations, which is now a different word. So you've got the people, laos, and then you've got nations, which is the word ethnos, which is often translated Gentile or foreigner in our Bibles. So either there were a whole lot of foreigners in Jerusalem, when the, or there will be a whole lot of foreigners in Jerusalem, which could be when these preachers were murdered and they saw their bodies or the entire world. Also foreigners will see their bodies. Now, if you read commentaries written before the age of technology or the information age, they'll say things like Albert Barnes did in 1834. Here's how he described this passage. He said, the essential idea is that there would be an assemblage of different classes of people to whom their carcasses would be exposed and that they would come and look upon them. We should expect to find the fulfillment of this in some place where, from any cause, a variety of people should be assembled, as in some capital or some commercial city to which they would be naturally attracted. You know what Albert Bar uh, is saying? He is saying, hey, all these people are going to come to Jerusalem. Now, this could be the case. But what if, because of technology, the ability to see these witnesses lying in the street and then miraculously raised back to life was broadcasted worldwide. That's not difficult for us to imagine. Back in 1991, when the U.S. liberated Kuwait, I remember watching the, world, the war unfold from my living room. The 24-hour cable news networks had just come on the scene, and CNN would show real-time, or close to real-time, footage. 
The thing, same thing happened when the world stood spellbound to their TVs in 1995 as the trial of the century concluded, and we watched as O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder. Then in 2001, we watched in horror as planes crashed into buildings. And in 2002, we witnessed shock and awe over Iraq. And for the next 20 years, we were able to have first row, front row eyewitness accounts to Hurricane Katrina, the war in Afghanistan, the capture of Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, hotly contested elections, COVID-19, the return of Afghanistan to the Taliban, and now we watch a war take place in the Ukraine. Sure, we may not be seeing things live, but within minutes, we can get onto YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram and see for ourselves how did Will Smith slap someone. I know you guys don't know. I'm keeping, I'm keeping up to date with the contemporary issues. <laughs> but I didn't have to watch it Sunday night. It is all over the Internet. If you've not gotten a meme by now, you're not paying attention. Some of you are saying, what's a meme? So it's possible that the nations witnessing this event in Revelation is a global phenomenon rather than a regional event. The nations are literally seeing it as opposed to figuratively, figurative representatives of various nations who happen to just be in Jerusalem when these killings happen. Can you see how, much a, how a scenario might be plausible? Now, here we go. Let's factor in your mistrust of the media. Many of you, none of you raised your hands and said you trusted the media. Now imagine yourself, and I do hope it is an imagination, as the church will not be here when the preaching ministry of these two witnesses commences, but imagine you are one of those around the world who watches on TV or the internet or a social media platform and sees these two men come back to life. Or maybe you hear the report on the 24-hour cable news network. What will you think? Well, if you're like Christians today, many Christians today, you'll say, that's fake news. I don't trust it. You'll deny it happened. You'll call it a conspiracy. You'll explain it away. You'll have such a distrust of the media, you will not believe it. And in the tribulation, that's exactly what the Antichrist wants people to believe. A place where you can deny reality simply because you don't trust the person reporting it. Talk about the COVID vaccine being a conditioner of the population ahead of the mark of the beast. Christians' reaction to the vaccine and their affection for conspiracy theories is a conditioning all of its own. But it's a conditioning that seeks to get the world population to reject anything reported to them to include in Revelation, miracles of God. When two men are resurrected and taken to heaven in front of the entire world, and right now, we're playing into it. Now, you could retort with say, but Christians aren't going to be here when those miracles happen. So what does it matter if we do or do not trust the media? This is true. We will not be here. But to just simply say it doesn't matter if we trust or distrust the media... Is, and it's just an arbitrary thing. It's certainly not where Christians need to reside. We can do better. We must do better. We need to be able to discern. We can't just wholesale say, I don't trust any of it. 
I'm not trying to convince you to believe any, everything you hear on the news or on the internet or on social media. In fact, I think tonight you'll hear me to claim exactly the opposite. But neither can we wholesale reject everything we hear simply because it comes from a source that we don't like. This brings me to the definition of discernment that now we need to establish. Lord willing, this fall in our adult Bible fellowships, we'll participate together in a study on the biblical doctrine of discernment. The book we're going to use is called The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment by Tim Challies. In that book, Challies defines discernment as this. Here's what he says. Discernment is, is a very important word, the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. We're going to steal this definition from those classes and use it this evening. Notice that the definition begins with the skill. Certainly, it requires skill for a Christian to engage social media and the information and knowledge they gain from those sources. So in this lecture, we're going to hone our skill of discerning our use of social media and the information and knowledge we get from there. So let's look at some practical questions for discerning what to do with the information we gather on social media. I'm going to give you four questions. And I encourage you to write these down. This is how you exercise discernment when gathering information. Number one, does the information show God's work, God at work in the world? Does the information show God at work in the world? It doesn't take long for one to look at social media and quickly become disillusioned with all the evil that is on there. And if we're not careful... We can make the mistake, and I'm going to use the term again, of applying theological dualism to social media. Now, you might be saying, theological dualism, what's that? Or maybe you remember from last year's apologetics class, and you're like, I remember that. That was one of our uh, discussions on uh, where does evil come from? And you might be saying, now wait, what does the problem with evil have to do with social media? Well, a lot, actually. If the challenge of social media is the ability to discern between right and wrong, we must recognize that there are certain actors who are actively working to deceive. Theological dualism is the idea, though, that good and evil coexist and have equal power. You've got good and you've got evil and they're just going head to head and it's out there on the internet. You've got good stuff and you've got bad stuff and it's just going head to head and you hope you stumble on the good stuff. You hope good wins out in the end. We're just, really what we're saying is we're just hoping that the power of God will last long enough to defeat the power of Satan. A clear winner right now is unclear. We're just hoping for the best. That's what theological dualism is. And we talked about it last winter. We talked about it in more detail. But in the context of social media, theological dualism has affected how we view evil and we place it, what we've done is we've placed it on equal footing with God's righteousness. But in doing so now, we give too much credit to Satan and his power. And here's how. I'm sure many of you have heard, that the, argument, heard the argument that maybe it goes something like this. Well, there's a secret conspiracy out there. They're endeavoring to accomplish X, Y, and Z. That's why you've got 
the, the, the vaccine. It's a conspiracy. Everybody wants that. Or maybe it's Hollywood or or maybe there's a conspiracy of the government or maybe it's big pharma. There's this conspiracy conspiracy out there. But this is where I think Christians lose their logical argument. We tend to think that the forces of evil in this world have some elaborate plan. Now, we talked about this in our second or third lecture where I said that Satan does have strategies. He does. He's not stupid. But sometimes I think we have this idea that a corrupt world that is degenerating has an elaborate plan. However, I think we could make the argument that if God is all that is good and orderly, then the opposite is true for those who oppose God. You see, God is not the author of confusion and chaos, but Satan is. So often when you see chaos abounding in the world, it's precisely because righteousness is absent. And not because there is an ordered plan to bring it about. It's actually the absence of order. It's chaos. When humans get involved, there's dysfunction, not order. And so I think we give way too much credit to say there is some cabal that is planning all this stuff. I'd challenge you to work 30 days for the United States government to find that it is dysfunctional. Because why? It's just every man does that which is right in their own eyes. There's no coordination. So we must ask, when it comes to social media, does the information I have show God at work in the world? This is why I use this verse, Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's, and what? The fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. God is sovereign over this entire world. There is not this some elaborate plan, and God is just hoping he has just a little more power to eke out a victory. He is actually using that plan he is using even the chaos to bring about his glory. When we go to social media and share information, does it glorify God by advocating order and cohesion or disorder and dysfunction? As Christians, we love to promulgate those things that sow discord and upheaval when we are simply denying the power of God who is sovereign over everything in this world. We don't have to hope God wins in the end. He controls even the evil power in this world and uses that for his glory. The second question we ask is this. Does the information you seek meet the conditions of Philippians 4.8? Let's read that verse. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Not only do we need to recognize God's power in the world, but we need to advocate those things that bring him glory. In social media, do we share those things that we hope are true or we know to be true? Our status updates, is it something that glorifies God? Is it honest or what we hope and would like to be true? Are we honest or do we try to find the sensational story? 
Well, not everything you hear on social media is true. Not everything you hear is false. That's life-shattering, isn't it? All I mean is that you simply must take every piece of information with some common sense and then sift it through the conditions of Philippians 4.8. The problem is some stories are so sensational where the use of exciting or shocking language at the expense of accuracy in order to provoke public interest or excitement lures us in and then we share it with someone else. If something sounds incredible or out of the ordinary or too good to be true, it probably is. You probably are not going to get the heir to an African prince who wants to bequeath to you millions of dollars. But this phenomenon is not new with social media. It's been a constant with human existence. You know who used to be the biggest offenders of sensational stories? Preachers. I've heard multiple evangelists and preachers passionately share personal illustrations that could not possibly have happened. Like a captain of an aircraft carrier telling a lighthouse to change their course. Or Elvis hearing the gospel in an elevator. You know, I've heard the one original who started the story that he witnessed Elvis in an elevator. And he also had a college and there were many who went to his college who also witnessed Elvis in an elevator. While social media may be the current place for such sensational stories, they are as old as human existence. We like sensational stories and we like to share them. Christians should not perpetuate lies. So do we do what, that, what is required of us by doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God? Or do we, do we share those things that are pure and lovely and of good report? Or do we like to be sensational with the provocative information? Are our status updates virtuous and praiseworthy? These are the things we should be thinking on. And when you seek information on social media, does the information, this is our third question, does the information get you gathered drive you to despair or to good works? One of the purposes of the assembly, according to Hebrews 10.25, is to exhort each other. But just before that verse, where we are told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we're told this, hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Our driving force should be to find ways to provoke each other to love, to provoke each other to good works. We should love and serve each other. If you can use social media to do that, you're doing well. But if social media causes you to despair and be discouraged, then you're not using it with discernment. If you get on the internet and you find, man, this is, this is devastating. You need to leave it alone. There's studies that have been done that in young teenage adolescent girls who have Instagram and Facebook and stuff, their self-image deteriorates, deteriorates until the suicide amongst that population is skyrocketing. Because all they care about is getting a little red number that says how many people have commented or liked their post. Does it drive you to despair or to love and good works? We live in a fallen world. In Romans 5, it details how after creation, sin entered into the world, how death came, and then how God's implemented his redemption plan. This is the story of mankind. Creation fall, redemption, and one day restoration or glorification. All social media should fit into this narrative. 
So this is our fourth question. Where does the information you gather fit into the biblical narrative of truth? Everything we do, everything we say points to one or more of these aspects. Does the information you gather or share demonstrate a creative order? That humans are created in the image of God? Does the information you share recognize that man has fallen? Is there a redemptive quality to the information you share or that you glean? Does it point to the promise of Christ's return where we, should be, we shall behold him as he is? All our information should fit the biblical narrative. If it ignores these components of the human story or lies or distorts them, it's the information we must avoid. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He has been a deceiver from the beginning. As times get worse and worse, so will the lies you see here and unfortunately even perpetuate on social media because it's a platform that allows you to do it. No one's going to police you. There may be peer pressure here or there, but you can say whatever you want. As Christians, we must engage social media with caution. Evil men and seducers are there. We do not need, though, to be among them. But if you develop discernment, discernment that comes from a Christian worldview, a worldview that is informed by divine revelation, you will learn to navigate the shoals of social media and will not become shipwrecked. And in case you don't think social media will affect you and your faith, consider this. Studies show that we spend an average of 144 minutes per day on social media of some sort. This means that for a person who begins using social media at the age of 10 and lives to be 72 years old, the average lifespan, that person will spend 3,462,390 minutes using social media. That's 57,706 and a half hours or more than 2,404 days or more than six and a half years of that person's life is on social media. You don't think six and a half years will have an effect on you? Because social media competes for our time and competes for our attention and it informs how we see the world and what we believe, it is certainly a contemporary theological issue and we need to handle it biblically. So next week we'll wrap up our course on contemporary theological issues with some closing thoughts and brief discussions on topics that you might email me that we might think are important but we didn't have time to address. But for this evening, be careful about what's out there. I trust and I pray that our discernment will increase. We don't have to give a list of do's and don'ts of platforms, applications, websites. Let's just pray for wisdom. Any thoughts or questions? All right. Let's close in prayer. We'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless us as we go. We thank you for this time. Lord, help us. Lord, I'm sure just the, the nature of what's on the Internet, but also those of us with flesh, we're prone to wander, Lord, and we failed. But Lord, I pray that you would hold us up. Lord, I pray that we would, we would strive for sanctification. And, and show sanctification even in our online persona 
in what people see of us in a digital world. Lord, I pray that we would always reflect you in whatever medium that we're a part of. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.